right. Good morning, Cross family. Two good mornings. You guys are great. Um, My name is Rick. I'm the pastor of student ministries here. And uh, now that we're in mid-May or end of May, I've been here for about six months with my wife and and baby. And uh, we just enjoy it here more and more. I mean, we love it. The same thing that made it a no-brainer to join here, to leave Lakeland, where we have all of our family, uh, and move here uh, was the thing that I'm still most excited about, and that is the discipleship culture that this church has and is being developed all the time, growth culture. Part of what that means is we just assume we're going to grow together and not just sit in pews, right, not just be uh, entertained, okay? Um, <clears throat> and so last time Karen and I spoke up here, it was a few weeks or months ago, about loving neighbor, and I even said then, uh, the fact that we would have a four-week series on loving neighbor is a sign that this is a discipleship to Jesus culture because in most market-driven or consumeristic churches, that would be considered nowhere near entertaining enough, right? That's not interesting enough. We all know how to do that. Uh, Teaching on financial prosperity or really good Christian married sex is what fills the pews, right? That's what gets people to come in. And so the fact that Tim was spending three or four weeks on loving neighbor, to me, I'm thinking, this is what the world needs. We actually do need to learn these things that we think we know how to do. It actually takes some really serious training. And in the same way, a six-week sermon series on suffering is another indication of that. So many uh, market-driven or consumer churches or just... Churches that want to do the right thing and are afraid of losing people, or whatever the situation is, normally deal with suffering in a way that's not super helpful to the people in their church, and it's not helpful to their neighbors. Uh, There's plenty of churches, you'll especially see this um, on late night Christian TV, uh, where they'll teach that you don't suffer if you have enough faith, or if you love Jesus, or if you give enough money to their ministry, right? And this is not in the Bible, okay? It's also not in real life. This doesn't happen anywhere, Uh, And so you got to think, why in the world does this still get taught? And you could ask the same thing about why Ponzi schemes exist. They don't work. We know they don't work. It's greed or desperation that keeps them going. And so this keeps getting presented, even though it's no good for anyone, right? So that's one way to deal with suffering as a church. Another one, um, I probably get more frustrated with this one more than any other, but when you'll have church, uh, churches that are really obsessed with the culture wars and really train their people to be you know, culture warriors who are not known for love for neighbor and more known for their political alliances or God's judgment on the world or something like that, um, you'll see stuff like I saw this week on Twitter after the bombing in Manchester. I don't know if this was a real account. It could have been some teenage atheist posing as a Christian. I don't know. But this lady who claimed to be a Christian is saying the bombing is the result of that artist being really skanky, right? I mean, these people got what they deserve. This is the judgment of God. This should make you cringe. And uh, sometimes it doesn't even make me angry because it just makes me so sad. But this is common. I mean, we've, there's caricatures of Christians out there that do that. And then I think the third way to miss dealing with suffering and serving our neighbor well through suffering, this one may be more good-hearted Uh, but not super helpful, many places will just uh, give people cutesy, glib answers that do not help the person suffering at all, but kind of make it a little uh, easier for the person who's hearing the suffering, right? So when someone loses a child and you say that child was just too beautiful for this world or God needed another angel in heaven or something like this, that's not for the person suffering. That's for the person who is listening to the suffering and it's not good, right? And so I appreciate that Tim has spent five or six weeks uh, on here on this topic, training us, 
that giving wisdom to someone who's suffering may not be the most helpful thing. What is commonly the most helpful thing is to sit, be quiet, hurt with them. Uh, there's a Swedish proverb that says, uh, joy shared is, is twice the joy, sorrow shared is half the sorrow. It's really cool how the Lord has set that up and for us to, to really help each other in situations like that. And so uh, it's really cool the timing of, of me speaking today. I'm going to share with you guys my testimony, which has to do with a particular type of suffering, one that comes from depression, a sense of meaninglessness, and I don't think we planned it like this. Uh, it just worked out really well that we're going into a series in Ecclesiastes after this, which is very similar to what I experienced. It just worked out very well. And so... Um, I'll share with you guys my testimony. I do want to say before I do share that there's, there's a bunch of different ways we can suffer. Uh, someone could just have chemical imbalances. This is a medical thing and it hurts them, right? It could be um, that someone just has a really lousy attitude and they're going to suffer forever, no matter how good life is. Okay, that, that is a legitimate way of suffering. Um, and then, of course, there's ways where people can suffer from either losing someone or being victimized personally, or oppressed or victimized by a system, okay? And, and let me just say, we don't compare our suffering to each other, right? Because all suffering is a 10 to that person. But I'm gonna tell you guys, I know what mine was about. It was about setting my hopes on things that I couldn't satisfy, which is an internal problem. And I just wanna hear everybody say, I'm not trying to compare my suffering to someone who's been victimized. Theirs is more dangerous than mine, and so I wanna show the proper respects there, okay? But, uh, but that being said, I'm gonna share with you guys uh, my testimony. Uh, but I was uh, born and raised in West Palm Beach, Florida, and uh, the party scene never appealed to me, so I found it a little bit boring, but the place was beautiful. I mean, bluest skies you can imagine, uh, palm trees everywhere, the beach was 15 minutes away, I'd go surfing every day after high school, and uh, it, was, it was a great way to grow up, I was really happy. Um, the students get grossed out when I, when I describe it like this, but I was a fetus when I first started going to church, okay? Uh, was praising in mama's womb, all right? It was a Pentecostal church, so we really did praise for reals, okay? And uh, so I was in there, and I had a real serious fear of God uh, ever since, which I think is appropriate. The love of God is the end of it, right? But you get started with fear. Um, but my salvation story is, is like so many uh, students that I met at Southeastern who'd grown up in the church. That was, I saw a scary movie when I was four, and my dad saw that this is the time to <laughs> lead him to the Lord, lead him to the safety of the Lord, uh, I was in a philosophy class a few years ago at Southeastern, and this particular class lost me big time. I was not tracking with what the professor was saying. And uh, he's, he's trying to articulate this concept that nobody was really getting. And he goes, uh, has anybody ever seen the movie The Abyss? Uh, he's from Canada, in case you couldn't tell with the accent right there. Uh, but he says, has anybody ever seen the movie The Abyss? And all of a sudden, my attention goes, looks up, and I go, actually, I got saved because of that movie. And he just looked at me, and he goes, continue, like, as in what I was going to say is not as interesting as how you got saved from watching The Abyss, right? And the story was, I just got scared as a four-year-old. My dad was watching it, whatever. And uh, so go to that church um, up until the time I leave for Southeastern in college. And so uh, one of the biggest turning points in my life uh, was an assignment that my sixth grade teacher uh, gave us. This is a brilliant assignment. He told us to make a family coat of arms, which you can imagine what a bunch of sixth graders' coat of arms look like. Not very impressive. You would not put it on a shield without some editing, okay? And, uh, but then research our family history. And so up until this point, I was mostly just terrified of my dad's dad, my grandpa. He's very stern, very quiet, 
Scandinavian guy. I don't think I ever had seen him laugh until after college. I mean, that's just how he was. And so I didn't know anything about his story. And so we, we take them to a buffet, and uh, I hear him talk for more than two minutes straight, which is a miracle. He goes on probably sharing his story for 15 minutes. And to reduce it really small, it was this. Uh, he's born in the U.S. in Minnesota, moves back to Finland, Finland, where all of his family is from. He grows up there. When he breaks his leg, he goes to the veterinarian, because that's what you have. And he's growing up on a farm. He's always hungry. At the age of 16 or 17, it is quite obvious that Hitler is going to take Finland soon. So this is a while ago, okay? And, uh, but it was pretty obvious, and he did. Hitler did take it real soon after. But he asks his dad, should I go and fight in the U.S. Army because I have citizenship, or should I stay in the Finnish Army and try to fight for home? And his dad says, we can't give you shoes in the Finnish Army. You should go to the U.S. He doesn't know English, so he's learning a little bit for a few months when he's working in New Jersey in a factory. Is still perfecting his English in basic training, and he said he would write down what it sounded like the drill instructor was saying. Not when he's getting yelled at, probably when he's taking lessons, right? But he's writing down what it sounds like they're saying and uh, for him to figure it out later on. And he looked at the notebooks after the war and had no idea what he was writing down. It just it didn't make any sense. But uh, anyways, he survives the war, comes back home, gets the GI Bill, lays brick during the day in New York City, uh, goes to school at night to become a construction foreman, has three sons and one later on, um, helps build the, the Grand Floridian in Disney World. It's like their fanciest hotel. And uh, that's a pretty inspiring immigrant story, okay? And uh, I mean, if he really polished that, he could go speak at arenas probably and inspire everybody. But what happened to me is, first of all, I felt this intense gratitude for being alive. Like, I don't know if you've ever missed an accident that happened right in front of you or something, and you feel that feeling of, oh, I'm really glad I'm alive. I felt that by a lot. Where it's just like, I, can't believe, I just can't believe he survived, and we're here, and like, I'm alive to hear this, and I just felt this in intense sense of gratitude, the feeling of luckiness of being alive. Number two, like I said, anyone could be inspired if he really you know, told that story, but for me, it was most inspirational because I thought, this is my blood. Like, this is, if he can do that, in a war zone, I can do that in the US, where all these overfed natives, you know, are playing too many video games. Like, I can really beat them in competition later on. And um, it's okay to laugh at that. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a native too, overfed. Um, but anyway, I just thought, I'm gonna really be able to accomplish a lot. And then, so I feel this gratitude and this inspiration. And then on the drive home, it hits me. I don't have any male cousins and I don't have any brothers. And I'm the last Bloomquist here. In Central Florida, there's not many. There's more in Minnesota and stuff, and in Finland. But um, at the time, I thought, if I don't lead a family, uh, no one hears Grandpa's story. You know, like the family just dissolves un unless my offspring really do a good job, and I want them to do something really great. So anyways, this was a very powerful combination, these three things, the thankfulness, the inspiration, and the sense of purpose drove me to approach every day at school as an opportunity to just build up successes, right? The goal was, at the time, uh, have six children, have six sons later on, train them to be very wise, great producers, American heroes, to say thank you, to giving my grandpa a gun, thank you, and uh, we're gonna serve this place, and we're gonna help run the country, and we're gonna contribute and show we're worth being here, was the thought. 
And so this resulted in two really good effects. First, I developed a, a code of ethics for myself. Maybe I was in high school at this point. But, uh, but I remember thinking stuff like, I'm not going to drink alcohol because it's an obvious way to mess your life up. I could be an addictive personality. It's just a fairly predictable one. Other people can do what they want, but I've seen it hurt people in my family, and this is an obvious way that I'm not going to get hurt. And the reason I thought that was because my sons are going to be 15, 16 some days, and they're going to want to go party with people, and they're going to know since the time they're born what we're all about as a family, but I want to be able to tell them, like, I didn't do that in high school. That's not for us. That's for other people who want to play, you know, and enjoy with that. But uh, in the Proverbs 31, 4, this was my attitude. It says, it is not for kings, Lemuel, who is one of the kings, it is not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer. And I had plans of my sons becoming rulers. Like, that's just, you know, as a young person. But it kept me from making certain mistakes, right? And in addition to that, it gave me this uh, feeling of needing to really just add value to my personality and to my name. And so after reading the book of Proverbs where it says that reputation is worth more than money, that was a real paradigm shift for me, first of all. But then I thought, that's awesome, because I don't have any money. And... Uh, I don't even, minimum wage was like 5.15 at the time, and uh, it's West Palm Beach, so everybody's super affluent, you know, and I thought, cool, let them get comfortable with the means that they have, I'm going to beat them on the relationship front. And so I approached every single day with this tremendous sense of purpose, knowing that opportunity comes from relational networks and stuff, I thought, this is, this is awesome, I can do that, and I've got more motivation. And it, it did help me do well in high school, as a result, um, I increased in wisdom from reading the Proverbs and just books and all this kind of stuff, really took learning seriously, and became student council president and homecoming king, and uh, as just, just so that I could tell my kids later on, hey, look, I could do this, you can do more, right? Joined the soccer team, even though I was terrible at the game. Uh, they thought I was funny on the bench, which was cool, okay? More social practice, more network practice. And uh, Bloomquist, get your head in the game, is something I heard a lot. And... Um, but anyways, high school was a lot of fun because I had this sense of freedom that this is only practice, this isn't real life yet. Real life's gonna be at college in Lakeland uh, in Assemblies of God College, okay? So I'm traditionally Pentecostal, and in Lake Worth, Florida, there were all these Scandinavian Assemblies of God girls who went there to Lakeland, and I said, that's where I am going to go. And uh, so I did meet Kara up there. I think she's more Dutch than Scandinavian, but it's cool, I really like her a lot. And um, <laughs> Everybody knows I'm married up so much. Um, but anyway, so it worked, thank the Lord. And, uh, but in high school, I thought, this isn't where I'm staying. All my friends are going to stay here and party in West Palm. I'm going to go to this place and just practice for the next phase. And uh, so go to Southeastern, and uh, probably about two or three months in, uh, go to this Target um, in this shopping center with, with three girls um, I don't know why I thought that would be fun because they immediately went to go look at earrings at the store and I didn't want to get friend zoned and so I decided I'm going to go do anything else other than look at earrings. And uh, so I read all the time, I'm increasing wisdom all the time because that's what's going to give me the competitive advantage in life and set the foundation for my kids. And uh, this is where, I don't think this would have affected anyone else I know in this way. What, what happens is pretty strange here. Um, it's what we would call an existential crisis, which just means you get in a position where you sit back and say, what am I doing with my life, right? And it takes 
the air out of your lungs. I mean, it just knocks you out, okay? This is so weird. I'll admit it's weird. I think the Lord had a ton to do with it. But I go read this book. And the, the book is called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it's a good one. And, uh, but there's this one dialogue between the guy that the book is about, who wrote the book. He's eight years old at the time. And he's going to a small businessman for mentorship. And he runs a little store. And the deal was, you work for me, I'll mentor you. And that was the deal. Well, the, the guy doesn't keep his end of the bargain up, the adult. He's trying to teach something to the kid. But uh, the kid doesn't get mentored for three weeks. He's saying no to his softball games on the weekends, and he's mad now. He's like, I'm getting ripped off by a grown-up. This is outrageous. So he goes up uh, to the store with his plan to make a real good quitting scene. Has anybody ever thought of a real good quitting scene in here? I've heard people do that. Um, but anyways, he's thinking, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to like, you know, make him feel bad for ripping me off. He goes in, says, I quit. And the guy's like, I'm sorry. I'm going to go through the story quick. He basically says, I'm sorry. I'll pay you. And the kid's like, not for sale. Sorry, you ripped me off. I don't get bought that easily. And he's like, well, let me pay you this much. And he ups the offer of, of compensation. And the kid is like, still, no. In fact, it just irritates him even more. You're trying to buy me? You've got to be kidding me. Uh, you ripped me off. I'm not working for you. Then the guy, the business owner, offers him a greater sum of money. And he's eight years old. He's thinking of the baseball cards he could buy, all this kind of stuff. And it hits him. I would be wealthier than any child my age if I made this amount. And it starts to get tempting to the kid. And then before he can even reason through the whole thing, the business owner says, how about I give you this much? And it was this ridiculous sum of money. It was this really large sum. And the eight-year-old says... Something broke in me when I heard him make that offer because it was absurd. It was absurd that he would pay an eight-year-old as much as grown-ups would make. And so what he was trying to teach him is that my mentorship's worth more than money. But what I took from it was I've been in a serious hurry since I was in sixth grade. I felt an intense sense of tunnel vision and passion for my goals. And I didn't realize it until I heard this situation where things came easy, but the, the question pops into my head, these outrageous goals that I have, being you know, a senator or something, and my kids turning out well, and being really, really wealthy, and being successful in every American noble way I could, this is the thought, if that came 20 years early, I, I have absolutely no idea what I would do after. I have no idea what my next pursuit would be, and I realize I'm addicted to pursuit. That's what this is. I am as I was getting more and more honest with myself over the years after this, I realized I'm trying to prove to myself that I'm a person who can conquer. I'm trying to prove to myself that I'm worthy or something. I don't know. I'm trying to impress people who made fun of my shoes in high school because I was as wealthy as them. I don't even like them. Why am I trying to impress them, right? And it just came crashing down. And I began to think, wait, what if my kids aren't impressed at all? What if my kids are really spoiled and don't want to carry on? And they don't care about my grandpa, right? They don't care about what we're trying to do. And the thought occurred to me, George Washington helped build a nation. And how often do his great, 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 great grandkids think, I'm descended from George Washington? Probably not that often, right? All of these vague motivations that had been pushing me with such passion for so long dissolved just vapor, and I just didn't know what to do after this, right? And so um, the depression came from a sense of purpose being lost. The thing that had driven me for as long as I was even close to being an adult was gone, and I just didn't know what to do after this. And I began to think, getting close to despair, that 
it's very possible that the only point of life is really just to avoid more and more pain, right? I mean, are you actually trying to achieve something or are you just trying to like pay your bills so you don't get kicked out, right? Is there, this is my question. Is there anything in life worth going after than simply trying to not hurt? This is a very depressing way to live. You could see how it was not fun to be around, right? So that being said, um, I remember uh, Tim Keller saying recently, he was a pastor who got cancer and he survived, but he talked about being in the hospital bed and being scared and frustrated, uh, sometimes with the Lord, and really worried, right? And he would say, as much as those negative emotions I had, it never occurred to me to say, I wish the doctor had never found this, right? And so even though I was seriously depressed as a college student thinking, what makes people happy? Like, what is even a good thing for us to do with our lives? I'm having these thoughts, but I thought, it's better to not be blind. It's, it's better to have these questions and feel this pain than to just go play video games and forget about it, right? Like, Churchill said that many times men stumble over the truth, pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and keep going as if nothing had happened. For me, it wasn't going to happen because I just knew um, I needed to solve this. And so the reason that God left me, let me suffer personally through this, I think, was because, <clears throat> as a general rule, uh, people don't change until the pain of staying the same is worth than the effort to change. Change hurts. It has to get to the point where the pain of staying the same is even worse and you're willing to make the change. And that's what happened with me. So I developed a strategy for making my way through this, <clears throat> figuring out what to do to my life, how to be a useful member of society, contribute to something that really counts. And I had, had four rules for myself. Number one, again, a lot of people will deal with depression issues from, with drugs and alcohol, and I thought, I'm not going to do it. Just that's... That's a distraction. I'm going to waste time. I do believe life is valuable. I just need to figure out why and how it's valuable. So I'm not going to distract myself with numbing my mind. Number two, I'm not going to distract myself with going and hanging out with people all the time and playing video games and watching TV. Got rid of the TV, did some solitude stuff. It would have been really better if I would have had some mentors in my life. Um, I want to point this out real quick. The need for community is absolutely so crucial to our spiritual development. Um, I got to thank Danny Joyner huge for being a voice in my life of reason um, and for helping me find this place. That was helpful. Um, but I had multiple friends in college who are good, devout people uh, who would just say, I hear you. I admire your quest. I think you're right in going after stuff, but you're going off the deep end a little bit. Right? That, I needed that. <clears throat> so that was helpful. Third rule, uh, when I was in sophomore or junior and I was just not getting out of this, just feeling really depressed for a long time, <clears throat> I thought, you know, they sell drugs for this. <laughs> like pharmacies will give you prescriptions. And, but for, and this could be needed for some people, for sure. But for me, I thought, this is not a chemical thing. This, the, I was absolutely fine until I had this crisis of meaning and purpose. I'm not gonna, that's just not going to treat the actual problem. And then fourth, this was the whole point of avoiding those other three things. I, am, I committed to myself. I am never going to build my sense of joy or hope or well-being I'm never going to choose a goal that is going to disappoint me, right? I don't care if I look like a bum to everybody, not particularly being aggressively productive and fulfilling potential right now. I'm going to find out what the right direction is. I'm not going any further until I figure out what is actually uh, helpful to do. And so in college, it was a big period of testing, um, testing humanitarian work, finding meaning through work, these different things. I'm not going to talk about that right now because I don't have enough time. I probably will refer to it in a few weeks when we talk about Ecclesiastes chapter 2. 
uh, listen to Tim in the next few weeks over Ecclesiastes, I could bet you I tried half the stuff Solomon did. So I'm going to skip that part, but this is what I eventually found. Um, I was a Christian, born and raised in the church, and I did believe Jesus is the smartest person who'd ever lived, right? Jesus can't be divine and dumb, as Dallas Willard would say. Do believe he has all authority. And so when you're not really entertained with your own goals anymore, it's really easy to, find, to pay attention to Jesus and find out what he thinks is important. And you can put that up on the screen. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, you hear what Jesus says is most important. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law. And so the situation was, I believe Jesus is right. I believe he makes the rules. I believe he knows how the universe and me is wired. And so intellectually, in my head, belief-wise, I bet that's true. To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, sure, that would be the most important thing in the world. But the situation I was in was that that doesn't do anything for me emotionally. I don't want to do that, right? Teresa of Avila had this beautiful prayer, which I found so absolutely helpful in my life. Teresa of Avila takes vows of celibacy, goes into this convent, and she's a nun. Think about how terrifying this would be. She becomes a nun, takes her vows, ends up in a convent, and says to the Lord in a moment of raw honesty, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. That is an acceptable prayer. That is, that's sometimes how you get started. I mean, if, forget the emotion. Believe what's true and go after it. The emotions will follow, right? And so I was frustrated as knowing that's the answer with, with no desire to do it for a while. Um, but eventually discovered an author named Dallas Willard, uh, who I named my son after. His name is Dallas Richard Bloomquist, my little guy. Because uh, Dallas Willard made such an impact on my life through him consistently presenting discipleship to Jesus Christ as the greatest opportunity you will ever find in any society. Communist, capitalist, free, restrictive government, there is no greater opportunity than discipleship to Jesus for a few reasons that I'll go over in a second. But this, this is the deal. I was so frustrated in college because I thought, number one, I don't desire to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because if I do, I don't have any will of my own anymore. If you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then this is actually a blessing. But you desire God's desires at that point. If you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's nothing left for you to just, I want to do this, right? And that was scary to me until you realized that you know, God actually wants what's best, right? I mean, like, he actually wants what is most fulfilling for us. And so eventually I began to see that as, that's a great option. I think I'll do that. And then when eventually I thought, okay, I'm serious about this. I'm going to learn to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what's really, really frustrating about that? You cannot just decide to do it and then do it. In the same way that most of us in here, other than maybe Dallas Hop, could choose to go and run 26 miles right this second, Okay. Most of us can't just stand up and run a marathon. In the same way, we can't just decide to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What it takes is what Jesus tells us to do, which is a relationship with him that is master and servant, master and student, teacher and student. He invites us into an apprenticeship with him, in addition to being Lord and Savior and everything else. We're actually in a relationship with him where we learn how to become the kind of person who can love God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this takes practice. It takes a framework. 
And uh, the reason I think that this discipleship to Jesus is the greatest opportunity any of us can have is because uh, there's a theologian at Yale who I appreciate. Uh, He says that the three things that humans need the most to really seriously flourish, not to survive, but to really flourish, humans need three things. We need sufficient external resources. We need food, we need enough water, we need the law. Um, Air conditioning's not absolutely necessary, but I love it, okay? But you need enough external stuff. You need police officers, right? There's a bunch of stuff that's gonna help us thrive externally. Secondly, you need internal wiring that is gonna help you thrive. So virtue, you're gonna need a right set of beliefs that match what is true and real. Um, Attitudes that help you recover when setbacks happen, this type of stuff, patience with people. And then third, this is the one that surprised me the most because I had picked up a lot of stoic philosophy in my background. Scandinavians are just not the most obviously happy people, okay, sometimes they are. It never occurred to me, seeing my grandparents, that being happy was really, really important. (laughs) Staying alive was enough, right? And, uh, but this theologian from Yale, who was from Yugoslavia and had suffered some in his lifetime, said that having a certain amount of satisfaction and happiness in your external resources and in your internal uh, situation, that's actually really important too. You need to at least be satisfied enough to keep the process going, right? And in discipleship to Jesus, these three are covered right? Where the, the whole point of becoming a disciple of Jesus is learning to become the kind of person who can like God. We do not naturally like God. He has a system that offends us, right? This grace thing is really embarrassing when you let it go deep enough that he accepts us through no merit of our own. The world does not work like that anywhere else. We have to become the kind of person who becomes humble enough to accept this, right? And so putting on the mind of Christ, having the mind of Christ, learning to live as he would is what we do and it internally wires us. As a result of that, just being on that path, just being on the path of saying, I am becoming the kind of person who is able to do what Jesus would do if he was in my unique position as a 32-year-old ginger who lives in Loganville, okay? That's gonna be different for you than it's gonna be for me, but there is a way Jesus would do things in your position. As I learn to do that and the internal tools are being formed, that's a good reason to be really joyful, right? It's, it's not wise to be overjoyed because you got a lot of money in the bank because it can disappear. It is not a safe way of, of investing your heart A safe way and a great way of investing your heart is to say, I am increasingly becoming the kind of person who can appreciate the glory of God. I cannot do it directly, but I'm on my way. I'm on the path, and therefore, I'm I'm heading towards the good life and have a little bit of the good life right now. It puts you on the trajectory of increasing your enjoyment of God forever. Part of the gospel, part of the good news for me is that I honestly believe that heaven won't be boring. God is actually enjoyable enough to keep us joyful for eternity. There's a lot of people who don't believe that, and it's scary. But but to believe that God is more enjoyable than all he has made on earth, and that he is enjoyable enough to keep you thriving throughout eternity, that's that's some big stuff, right? And then as this process goes, as our virtue is developed, as our patience is developed, our knowledge is developed, and our joy increases, I want you to picture what kind of person that would be dealing with his or her neighbors, or their jobs. Someone who has a big sense of satisfaction because of where they're heading in the Lord can do their job with a better attitude than someone who doesn't really want to go to work that day because they don't feel like they're getting paid enough. This is the, these people with the internal wiring like Jesus, 
that have an increasing amount of joy are the best possible thing to happen to a workplace or a job because they're not going on the same source that everybody else is going to. Uh, Tozer calls this a situation where you own nothing and possess everything. You can experience trials with joy, as James tells us to. Imagine just being the kind of person where something gets difficult, you get in a traffic jam, and you say, oh, this is awesome, this is an opportunity to practice patience. That's a fun, you might be irritated for a second, and like, this guy's kind of free, and I kind of like it. I'd like to be like that. And then, of course, as we understand God is the greatest treasure in the universe, we don't have to feel entirely guilty when a luxury comes our way, right? We absolutely must have solidarity with the poor and be aware of the people and other people who don't have enough money or food to stay alive. But when Jesus is our greatest treasure, we can receive a steak dinner in a way that says, thank you, thank you. I see you as the creator, you're the giver of this gift, and it helps me love you just a little bit more. It helps me trust that you're good. So at this point, we can believe that the point of walking with God isn't to arrive but to walk with God. Um, I'm going to give you two applications here because few, uh, there's been so many times where I've told my story and people stare at me blankly because they've gone through like serious, horrific stuff and they're like, that was your problem? <laughs> you weren't happy? Okay. I understand it's kind of an odd situation. Um, but I do think that all of us, whether or not that we've dealt with serious suffering from the external sources or have just set our hope on something that's not going to fulfill we're all tempted to put our hope and trust into something other than God. We are always tempted to do this at some point, whether you're wealthy, whether you're not. And so the two applications I want to give you guys uh, and, and that I practice myself is to guard our heart, which is to say invest your heart in Jesus during the daily moments of your life. So Ricky's getting to the age now where he's got a personality, okay? My little guy, for a long time, he just kind of sat there and zoned out and uh, wasn't so fun to play with. Now he growls at everybody, which I think is hilarious. And he can run around and pick up this big ball and kind of chuck it. And there's just times where just this joy hits me seeing him do this. There are times when Kara will tell a joke or say something funny, and I just am reminded, I mean, it's brought to the center of my attention how absurdly blessed I am to have these two people in my life. And what I have to do at that moment is immediately say, thank you, God, Thank you, God, for giving me my wife and my kid. I see this as a foreshadowing of the intense joy that we're all going to have in heaven someday. This is just a little love note, and as much as I enjoy them and as precious as they are to you, I believe that you're more precious than them, right? And you can satisfy them, and they can't satisfy me, and it would hurt them for me to depend on them to have the satisfaction I need to have in you and just, just thank the Lord for them and, and see it as a... As a way of knowing that he's going to take care of us later. He's going to take care of me later. He's created joy for us in the future. And then secondly, no matter how much you guard your heart, no matter how much you thank the Lord for the blessings in your life right now, there are going to be times where either a tragedy happens, an external uh, thing happens. Maybe it's, you know, you're just disappointed. Maybe you made an investment and it totally lost. You're going to feel a certain amount of pain, which is fine. Find that pain. Don't ignore it. Engage it with Jesus' mercy and say, Lord, that little fracture in my heart, I want you to fill that. I need you to fill that. You're the only eternally uh, substantial person in the world. You're the only proper hope for me. If there's a little split in my heart, no matter where it comes from, I want you to fill it. I want you to give me peace deep. There's this art form in Japan that kind of illustrates that pretty well where they'll have little teacups that break 
and instead of just chucking them in the trash, they'll bond them back together with this golden material. And so you see the teacup, but there's these little golden threads that are holding it together now, and it makes it even more interesting where it came from. And the, the recreation of it is, is more beautiful. It becomes an art form itself. That's what Jesus wants to do with us, right? Thank you for joining us for the teaching here at the Cross Loganville. Let me encourage you to access our website, thecrossloganville.org. Tons of information. Uh, we'll answer many of your questions. Maybe you've been pondering what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ or maybe just uh, some other issues you're going through and you're like, uh, I, I need to talk to someone. We would love to help you. Contact us via email, info at thecrossloganville.org or you can call us at 770-554-3322. God bless you. Make it a great day.